Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And if you're new to the podcast, thanks for checking it out. I hope you like what you hear. And if you do, don't forget to rate and follow the show. So last week I said, if you want a Horsepower Heritage decal, follow me over on Instagram and send me a DM. And that offer still stands, by the way. But meanwhile, Barry, Scott, Manuel, Jeff, Summer, Mark, and all the rest of you who hit me up this week, your decals are on the way. Thanks for supporting the show. All right, well, today is the story of the station wagon. For decades, wagons were the king of the castle if you needed to haul people and stuff. First car I ever drove was a 67 Ford Fairlane wagon. It was lime green gold metallic with an analogous interior, which just means the interior is the same color as the outside of the car. And it had a 289 V8, great motor. And when I was a kid, we drove it a couple thousand miles across country, and I sat in the way back and pumped my arm to get the big rigs to blow their air horn. And I guess I've had a soft spot for wagons ever since. If you never had a wagon growing up, then you're probably under 40 years old, and you also probably got stuck in a minivan. And I'm very sorry that that happened to you. And I hope at least it wasn't a Ford Aerostar. I always hated those the most for some reason. Anyway, the story of the station wagon is coming right up after this. Today's episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. And if you like scale model cars, they've got a special deal for my listeners. Whether you're looking for race cars or street cars, they've got something you'll like in itty bitty 164th scale all the way up to the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. You can see it all at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. And when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, you'll get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. It's probably no surprise that the origins of the station wagon go back some time. But would you believe all the way to 1620? Well, that's when our story begins, northeast of the city of London, in an area known as Hackney. Now, today, Hackney is well within the city limits, but at that time, it was just a village in the countryside where the nobility and wealthy Londoners built second homes. But the need for convenient transportation to and from the city resulted in a burgeoning market for hired carriages, and they were soon called Hackney Carriages a term that was eventually applied to London taxicabs in general. That name carried over to colonial America, and in fact, the city of Boston, Massachusetts, still uses the term today for taxicabs and sightseeing carriages. But anyway, somewhere along the line, Hackney got shortened to Hack. And by the end of the American Civil War, the U.S. was about to experience a revolution in long-distance travel the Transcontinental Railroad. Journeys that were once long and arduous were now going to be fast, safe, and comfortable. Finally, mass transportation on land was possible and affordable, and the pace of westward migration accelerated. The American West needed workers and... The railroad allowed people to seek their fortunes on a scale that was unheard of just a few years earlier. 
But the range of a steam locomotive was limited by the supply of two things, coal and water. So elevated water tanks were built about every 50 to 100 miles along the railroad, as well as coaling towers, which were less numerous because the locomotives consumed coal at a slower rate than they did water. Now, servicing the train gave rise to thousands of new towns, some of which were not much more than a water tower and perhaps a small store and a post office, or maybe even just a tent city. By the way, when a locomotive needed to take on water, the crew would reach out and swing a pipe over the boiler tank, and then they would jerk on a chain to open a valve on the tower and start the flow of water. And that's where we get the term jerkwater town. A place where there's nothing going on. Just a wide spot in the road on the way to somewhere else. Railroad depots were built in larger towns to handle the flow of cargo and passengers. Once a train had arrived at the depot, passengers were met by horse-drawn wagons called depot hacks. And they typically had seating for six or more passengers and their luggage. And if you were lucky, it might even have a Surrey top and maybe even side curtains to keep the weather out. And that brings us to the 20th century. Not much changed at the beginning of the motorized era. Motorized depot hacks were usually built on a commercial truck chassis, but they were still pretty primitive. They were horseless carriages in every sense of the term. But what really changed the depot hack was the arrival of the most important car in history, the Ford Model T. It went into production in August of 1908, and 15 million were built over the next 20 years. Ford constantly fine-tuned their manufacturing process until a Model T rolled off the assembly line every three minutes, and the price actually went down each year. At one point, half the cars in the world were Model Ts. In 1910, Ford began to sell the T as a rolling chassis and numerous companies added their own custom bodies, like panel trucks, fire engines, something called a Light Express, which was basically a pickup truck, and of course, the depot hack, with simple wooden bodies and bench seating. It's not exactly clear when the term station wagon came into use, but I'm going to speculate here, and I think it was probably coined by one of those many early coach builders, in an attempt to distinguish its bodywork from the crude image of the depot hack, which was almost exclusively intended for commercial use. So, the changing terminology may have been an effort to shape public perception and attract a bigger pool of buyers. As a side note here, the station wagon had already been accepted as a luxury car in England, being built on Rolls-Royce chassis. Only in England, they called them shooting brakes because they were intended to transport the upper crust on hunting excursions. The earliest Rolls-Royce shooting brakes were built around 1908 to 1910. And by the way, the brake part of the name referred to a time when if you had horses that were a little too wild for other duties, you would harness them to a heavy wagon and brake them. In the U.S., the first factory-built station wagon was from Star one of the nameplates in the Durant Motors lineup. Durant was established by General Motors founder Billy Durant after he was ousted from GM in 1920. The Star Station Wagon came out in 1923, 
and it was advertised as an ideal car for town and country, for express and passenger station service, city delivery, or general farm use. In any case, by the mid-1920s, it was clear that there was a growing consumer demand for station wagons, and pretty soon, other makes got into the game, including Chevrolet, Buick, and Dodge Brothers. And there were plenty of other makes here and there with coach-built bodies, but it looked as though Ford was going to continue to lead the way. And there are some interesting details here that you're going to want to hear. Between 1916 and 1924, Henry Ford took annual camping trips with his close friends, Harvey Firestone and Thomas Edison. And they called themselves the Vagabonds. You know, just three of the most successful entrepreneurs in American history enjoying a quaint camping trip with a small army of cooks, camp workers, and guides. No big deal, right? Well, one place they camped was the Iron Mountain Wilderness in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Henry Ford was constantly working on cost controls, and he was eliminating his outside suppliers, including for raw materials like iron ore and lumber. And there were nearly 100 board feet of lumber in the wheels, body framing, and other parts of the Model T. So in 1919, Ford asked his cousin's husband, a guy named Edward Kingsford, if he would do some survey work and help him acquire some land in the Upper Peninsula. Kingsford made his living in real estate, logging, and something called timber cruising, which is the process of assessing a stand of trees for its commercial potential. Kingsford arranged the purchase of over 300,000 acres of timberland, on which Ford built the Iron Mountain Sawmill and Power Plant, a massive facility. And Kingsford became the general manager. All right, now I have to tell you the story within the story. The Iron Mountain Sawmill generated a huge amount of scrap wood and sawdust, and it was going to cost the company a lot of money to dispose of it. But Henry Ford and Thomas Edison came up with a way to make the waste into charcoal briquettes. And supposedly, they did this around the campfire. Edison designed a charcoal plant, and they built it on site. And before too long, Ford dealers nationwide were selling small packs of charcoal, and they were a big hit. Years later, Ford sold this charcoal business, and it was renamed Kingsford. So if you've ever had a backyard barbecue, now you know the backstory. The charcoal wasn't just a gimmick, though. There were cultural forces in play here that actually made it a genius move. And here's why. For decades, the railroads had been promoting the stunning beauty of the American West. And that sold a lot of train tickets. Yellowstone became the first national park in 1872. Later, John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt drew worldwide attention to the Yosemite Valley, and the automobile made these natural wonders even more accessible. Meanwhile, a man named C.C. Filson of Seattle, Washington, who had become an outfitter for the Klondike Gold Rush, but saw business fall off a cliff when the rush ended in 1899, started marketing his goods to outdoorsmen instead. And another guy named W.C. Coleman patented his Model L316 pressurized gasoline arc lantern in 1914. Then, 
After the First World War, peace and tranquility was just what people wanted. And army surplus tents and other pieces of kit were a dime a dozen. Actually, they were probably more like a penny a dozen. But you get the picture. By the Roaring Twenties, a camping craze was sweeping the country. And a station wagon was just about the perfect vehicle if you were an outdoorsman, a rancher, or just a family man looking to take your wife and kids and the dog and all your gear on a trip to the great outdoors. So by 1929, Ford got serious and began building maple and birch station wagon bodies in-house on the Model A, which replaced the Model T two years earlier. It still didn't have roll-up windows, but everything else was a dramatic improvement over the Model T. Then the flathead V8 arrived in 1932, and soon after that, roll-up glass windows and deluxe trim options in 34. The labor cost in the wooden bodies raised the price compared to the rest of the Ford line. But throughout the 1930s, Ford station wagons continued to dominate. The only real alternatives were Chevrolet and Dodge. Other brands like Packard and Buick were starting to build more wagons late in the decade. But soon, all the U.S. car makers would have a bigger job on their hands. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Ford shut down automobile production in January 1942 and committed their industrial might to the war effort. The Iron Mountain Sawmill built airborne assault gliders. The Dearborn plant built the 2,000-horsepower Pratt & Whitney R2800 radial aircraft engine. Each of them had 18 cylinders in two rows. Over a quarter of a million Jeeps were made at various plants around the country. But Ford's biggest operation was the Willow Run Assembly Plant. At 3.5 million square feet, it was the world's largest single-story building. It was built to assemble the consolidated B-24 Liberator, eventually producing one of these four-engine bombers every 55 minutes on parallel assembly lines. The wartime output of Ford and the other car makers was an industrial miracle. They supplied not only the American forces, but all of the free world. Henry Ford was in failing health by 1945, and he died two years later, at the age of 83. So he didn't live to see the incredible changes in the auto industry that were just around the corner. When the war ended, it also meant that the days of the wooden-bodied station wagon were numbered. They held on for a few years, but that's partly because most cars until 1948 were just reworked pre-war models. Woodies were labor-intensive, and they were hard to maintain. You had to sand and varnish them constantly. And the post-war housing boom meant that lumber prices, in general, hit all-time highs. And not just for home construction, but also for the furniture industry. 
And it was at that point that station wagons had finally become a luxury item. The last true American Woody was the 1953 Buick estate wagon. The wood motif stayed, though, with Chevrolet, for example, imitating the old wooden body construction using sheet metal stamping and painted wood grain. Over at Ford, they used real wooden trim at first, and then later simulated wood grain trim in vinyl and fiberglass. And their top-of-the-line Country Squire was a premium vehicle. Although Woodies were attractive and charming, it was now the jet age, and it wasn't long before Ford was the only one to stick with the wood grain look. Other car makers wanted their wagons to reflect the future, and the move away from wooden bodies presented exciting new possibilities. For example, in 1954, Chevrolet built the Nomad show car, a two-door wagon based on the Corvette. It never reached production, but the nameplate and the styling were used on the full-size Bel Air line from 1955 to 1957 as the Nomad Sport Wagon, which was a sleek two-door. Pontiac also had their own two-door wagon called the Safari. And I've got to mention the Plymouth Plainsman, which was pretty wild. Like many Chrysler show cars, it was built by Ghia in Italy. And it was a two-door wagon painted in a color they called Palomino Beige Metallic, with a bright white roof section outlined in chrome trim. The paint scheme and the styling were inspired by the covered wagons that were used in the westward migration. Inside, the Plainsman had brown and white calfskin inserts on the upholstery, and in the cargo area, a power seat would rise out of the floor with the touch of a button. And to top it off, the Plainsman had Texas Longhorn steerhead emblems attached to the B pillars and the tailgate, which, by the way, was also power operated along with the rear window. The appearance of these show cars was important. The station wagon had finally broken out of its image as purely a commercial vehicle, and the post war baby boom, of course, made that inevitable. It was the perfect family car. Pretty soon, the big three offered a wagon in every division except their very top nameplates, Cadillac, Lincoln, and Imperial. And with big horsepower if you wanted it. For example, the 59 Chrysler New Yorker Town & Country Wagon had the optional 413 cubic inch big block V8, rated at 380 horsepower and 525 pound-feet of torque. Even at over 4,200 pounds, this thing would go from 0 to 60 in under 8 seconds. At least, that's what they claimed. I haven't done it myself. In 1956, construction began on the interstate highway system, and American families were spending their summer vacations on the road, visiting places like Palm Beach, the Grand Canyon, and of course, the newly opened Disneyland. The cars got bigger with seating for up to nine passengers and loaded with every modern convenience. Air conditioning? Check. Power windows? Check. Signal-seeking AM radio? Check. Seatbelts? Well, no seatbelts. But still, life was pretty good. As time went on, designers played with interesting roof designs, too, like Studebaker's Wagoneer. It had a power-sliding roof section over the cargo area, so you could haul oversized cargo, almost like a pickup. Or the Buick Skylark and the Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser. Both of them had a kicked-up roofline and skylight windows in the rear section. And another nifty feature, tailgates that 
were multifunction. Some would fold down and swing out, and others had rear glass that hinged upward in a clamshell configuration. Smaller wagons like the Ford Falcon, Buick Special, Chevrolet Nova, and Chevrolet Corvair hit the market in the early 60s. And they sold well, but by 1965, the station wagon was being challenged by cars like the Jeep Wagoneer, the International Travel All, and even the Volkswagen Type 2. They all had the versatility of a wagon and then some. By the late 1960s, station wagons were really beginning to lose their appeal. Again, it was a cultural shift. Baby boomers were growing up and heading away to college, and the birth rate had declined dramatically. The gas crisis of 1973 sucker-punched this station wagon right in the jaw. And then came the dreaded Chrysler minivan. It was a mundane, soulless box with the fakest of fake wood paneling. It was boredom on wheels. You know that final scene in the movie Goodfellas when Henry Hill is in the witness protection program and he's complaining that everything is different now and he's just an average nobody and he ordered spaghetti with marinara sauce and he got egg noodles and ketchup instead? Well, in his cookie-cutter suburban driveway sits a Ford Fairmont station wagon with fake wood paneling. And that pretty much sums up the ignominious fate of the station wagon. I mean, it's not entirely dead, but it is definitely on life support. But I guess we really like our SUVs and our crew cab pickups. Now, there are a few cool wagons out there from Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, and Volvo, although they're all more in the European shooting brake tradition, naturally. We'll probably never again see the style or the roominess of the mid-century American station wagon. I don't know, maybe the EV revolution will change that. You can't be too sentimental after all. Although I have to say that I would like a Woody someday. Maybe a 39 Ford. I just don't want to have to sand it and varnish it every year. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave me five stars and a quick review. And if you want to get in touch, go to the website at horsepowerheritage.com, hit the contact button there, and that'll take you where you want to go. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.